You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. So much of Jesus' birth story and his nativity is shaped not by the Bible, but by our culture and songs we sing in our culture. So if you think about songs that we sing or culture things that happen, you think about the song, We Three Kings, of Orientar, bearing gifts, we traveled afar, right? That idea of we three kings, is, is that a biblical idea? Were there three kings or were there 10 kings or were there 20 kings? Do we know that that song is theologically right, right? It, do we know that three kings were the ones that delivered the gifts to Jesus? Well, Today, in the Matthew text that we're going to look at, we're going to find that out. Uh, we three kings of Orinar. My wife is a great wife, and she's been a great mom at every stage of our kids' lives. I've loved watching her uh, parent our kids as they get older and how she just adapts so well. But when our kids were small, we were having an issue at Christmas time where the kids would play with the decorations, the nicer ones on the tree, or that she would put on coffee stands or night stands. And, and so she came up with this idea that we would buy this set. This is the little people nativity scene. Um, and she would put it, on, that was sort of a funny response. She would put it on the table so that the kids could play with it, right? So if they wanted to play with the Christmas decoration, this was the one that they could play with. And this is what our kids grew up seeing. In fact, my youngest son, who's 12 years old now, just last year, he was praying, playing with this in his room. Just kidding, he wasn't playing with it. But we do still put it out. We do still put it out. Um, but you can see there's some interesting things ab about this that it's like that our culture has shaped how we think. One is that it's in like a, a wood uh, stable kind of thing. The reality is if we study scripture in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus more than likely wasn't born in a wood structure type place. He was more than likely born in the side of a cave. And so when we do these wood structures, um, we're sort of not being true to the text. Another thing that this has is, it, interestingly, it doesn't have any shepherds. So I guess that was too expensive to add shepherds to it. But it does have three wise men. And so typically when we see a nativity scene, what do we see? The shepherds and the three wise men, right, that are, that are there. And so we want to go to the text today, though, and say... How is our view of Christmas and the nativity story shaped by culture, shaped by the songs we sing, or how much of it is shaped by the word of God? So I want you to stand with me and we're going to look at Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12. Matthew chapter 2, so we finished chapter 1. 
Chapter 1 ends with, when Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, which is Mary, and he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So we end Matthew with Jesus being born. And now we're transitioning to chapter 2, which continues the story of Jesus after his birth. Here's how the sermon's going to work today. And I'm going to have to move really fast because of seven baptisms today, but we'll, we'll get there. Three things that we're going to do. First, I'm going to introduce you to some new characters that come on the scene in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to see Herod. We're going to see wise men. And we're going to see chief priests and scribes. So I'm going to introduce you to these three different groups of people. Then we're going to run through the text really quick. Verses 1 through 12. I'm going to walk verse by verse. So keep your Bible out. And we're going to look at how are they shaped by the word. As they're reading, how is our view of it shaped? How were, was their view of what was going on shaped by the word? And then the last thing I want to talk to you about today is what is our response to this story? So when we see this story of Jesus, how should we respond to it? So you follow along in the word. It'll be on the screen as well. I'm going to do verses 1 through 12 of Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from where what from from them what time the star had appeared and he sent them to Bethlehem saying go and search diligently for the child and when you have found him bring me word that I too may come and worship him and after listening to the king they went on their way and behold the star that had seen that, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream to not return, to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Father, open our eyes to your word today so that we can see you clearly, that we can know you better, and in return, live lives that reflect your word, live lives that are shaped by your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the first thing that I want to do today in our time together is introduce you to three new characters that come into the story of Jesus. We find this in chapter 1 where it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
Let me introduce you to Herod the king. He is known in history as Herod the Great, and he was born in 73 BC, that is, before Christ. And he was named the king of Judea by the Roman Senate in 40 BC. By 37 BC, he had crushed with the help of Roman forces all the oppositions, all the op- opposition to his rule. He was a, a non-Jewish leader, king of the Jews. He was wealthy. He was politically gifted. He was intensely loyal. He had an excellent administrative gift. And he was clever enough to remain in good graces for successive Roman emperors. If you study history, his famine relief during those days was superb. His building projects were known by people around the world. And he was respected by many of his foes because of the buildings that he produced. But as it is in many world or political leaders, they have a dark side to their leadership. And Herod was no different. Herod loved power. He inflicted incredibly high taxes on his people. He resented the fact that many of the Jewish people in his, under his leadership did not consider him to be king because he was not from a Jewish line. He was not a descendant of a Jew. So they considered him to be an illegal king. So this is what he did. Because he understood that, he made the people refer to him as the king of the Jews. So as he would talk to people, it was like, hey, you refer to me as the king of the Jews. This is how much uh, desire and greed and lust he had for power. He wanted to be the man in charge and he wanted everyone to follow and worship him. Towards the end of his life, when Jesus comes along, suffering and illness had compounded to the place that he had become really paranoid about his rule and his leadership. And so he began to just be really cruel, have fits of rage and jealousy. And so what he began to do is he began to kill close associates, people that he would view as threats to his throne. He would kill them. He took one of his wives. He had many wives, but he took one of his wives who was of Jewish descent and he he had her killed because he figured they're not going to follow me because I'm not truly a Jewish king. And so they're going to go with this lady and one of her sons. So she, he had her killed. He also had two of his sons killed that he felt were were trying to usurp his authority. So he was just, towards the end of his reign, he was losing his mind. In fact, he was so crazy that he gathered up some of the most distinguished Jewish citizens, had them arrested and imprisoned, and then made an order for them to be killed upon his death so that the people would be mourning at his death even though it wasn't about him. Because they knew when he died, they would all be like, yeah, (laughs) right? So he planned and had Jewish leaders killed at his death so that the, the city, the state would be in mourning when he died. Caesar Augustus supposedly made this famous quote, he would rather be Herod's pig than his son. So this is the guy we meet in Matthew chapter 2 in verse 1. Herod 
the king. Then we're introduced to guys by the name of, or, or they were referred to as wise men. These men were leading figures in the religious court life of the country of their origin. They employed a variety of scientific and diplomatic and religious elements into their work. What's interesting about these wise men is they were not kings. Right, so we three kings, maybe not exactly the truth. They were not kings, but they were leaders in their culture and they were producers of kings. So they would help pick kings, but they were not kings. The first time that we hear of wise men in scripture is in the book of Daniel. So turn with me in your Old Testament part of your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. And in Daniel chapter 2, what we find is the story that Nebuchadnezzar has gone to his wise men, these men, and said to them, hey, I had this dream, I need you to interpret this dream for me. And the wise men, if you know the story, come back to, Her or come back to Nebuchadnezzar and don't have an interpretation for him. So they bring Daniel into the equation and Daniel interprets the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 46 of Daniel chapter 2, it says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering of incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. And listen to this last phrase. And chief perfect, perfect over all the wise men of Babylon. So these are not obviously not the same wise men that came and saw Jesus, but this is where we first hear of this idea of wise men. So Daniel is put in charge over all the wise men in Babylon. And as he leads them, and, and here's what's interesting, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to kill all of the wise men. Because he was like, they couldn't interpret my dream, so I'm done with them. But Daniel pleads for their life. So the wise men were really loyal to Daniel because he saved their life. And so Daniel becomes this leader amongst these wise men. So how did these wise men know that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, this king of the Jews? Well, it all started with Daniel. Because Daniel would have taken the scriptures into the way, their way of thinking and began to say, this is a prophecy, this is a, a Messiah, an anointed king that is going to come. So these men that traveled probably 900 miles, took them 40 days, about 20 miles a day to get to Jerusalem were influenced by Daniel all the way back in the Old Testament. And he was the one that was influencing them and pointing them to scripture and subsequent generations after that. Then we meet a little bit later, the chief priest and the scribes. So who are the chief priest and the scribes? Chief priests are the Jewish uh, worshipers of the day, the, the religious leaders of the day. They were a corrupt group of religious leaders who used their influence for political gain and power. So it really wasn't, their worship wasn't about following God. It wasn't about worshiping Jesus. Their 
Leadership was about power. It was about influence. These are the chief priests. Then you have scribes. Who were the scribes? The scribes were those who represented the Jewish law of the day. So we have lawyers today who teach the law, defend the law, interpret the law. These guys were in some ways that way. People would go before the scribes and they would stand and they would interpret the law to them and, and do those kinds of things. This was the scribes of the day. So these are three new characters that are popping onto the scene here in Matthew chapter 2 that I, I wanted you to be aware of and to know as we work through this section. So let's work through it verse by verse beginning in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold wise men came from the east and came to Jerusalem. So Bethlehem was about six miles outside of Jerusalem, all right? So these wise men come to Jerusalem to inquire about this prophecy that they have heard of. In verse 2 it says, saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, what did Herod refer to himself as and want people to refer to him as? King of the Jews. So can you imagine when this entourage, and, and we don't know that there was three wise men, because in reality, when you study history, it was usually a caravan of them. So picture the president of the United States coming in here. There would be a caravan of people with him, right? That's the same thing with wise men. It was noticeable when they were traveling. So it wasn't like, hey, look at that one car that's coming along. There was a group of cars that were going with them. And they come to Jesus or they come to Herod and say, where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And you can imagine when Herod hears king of the Jews, his cackles on the back of his neck go up, right? He's like, something is not right. In verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Now that troubled is a very nice word that scripture translates for us. The idea is he was ticked because he was the king of the Jews. And who is this prophecy about king of the Jews that has been born that they're talking about? And then it says, and all Jerusalem with him. So it's not, not only was Herod troubled, but all Jerusalem was troubled. Were they troubled because this prophecy was being fulfilled and no, no, they were troubled because as the saying goes, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And so that's what's going on here. They're troubled because if Herod's troubled, it's going to be a bad day in that area. And this is not going to be good. And so Herod, the Bible says in verse four, assembles all the chief priests and the scribes. We know them to be the religious leaders of the day. And he inquired of them where Christ was to be born. What's interesting to me is that Herod doesn't ask them, who is this guy who's born king of the Jews? What does Herod ask them? Where was he born? So what that tells me is Herod already knew something about this prophecy. That, that Herod wasn't blind to the reality of the Old Testament that prophesied that there would be an, a Messiah, an anointed one, a king who would come. And so he's like, I just want to know where he was born at. 
And we know later, and we'll get to this next week, that he was asking that because he was putting together a plot to kill any babies or toddlers around that time and around that area so that he could just squelch anybody who would be called the king of the Jews. And so he gathers these guys together and says, well, where is he supposed to be born? And listen to these religious scribes or these, these religious leaders. They told him, and it's almost like, of course, we know where he's going to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, and this is Micah the prophet, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You'll see in chapter, in verse 5 and 6, he uses the term Judea, Judah, Judah. Why, why does he keep repeating this? Why does he choose Micah 5.2 as the means to put out there as the scripture to use to say your life should be shaped by this because he wants his audience to be reminded of what the theme of the book of Matthew is. Jesus is king. And why does Judah matter? Because Prophecy tells us that David's line was through the line of Judah and that Judah through that line would come the king who would set up his throne forever. So again, Matthew is saying to his audience, listen guys, I'm trying to help you see that Jesus is the king of the Jews. That Jesus is the one that you have been looking for. Verse 7, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly, and from them he asked what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Do you hear the deceitfulness in his voice? Right? He does it quietly. Why? Because he doesn't want people to think, oh, I believe that there is a king of the Jews born. So he calls him quietly and says, listen, fellas, I want you to go find him. And when you find him, come back because my heart wants to worship him as well, right? And it's like, eh, okay. All right, here we go. Verse nine. And after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose, this is prophecy as well, went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And then verse 10 says, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Translated, they were pumped out of their minds, right? Like when they got to where Jesus was, when they saw the star, and I don't have time today because of our short time, but I believe the star was an actual angel that he was using to point them to where he should go. Maybe the first star that they saw originally was a natural star, but this star was an angel that was pointing them to where Jesus was. We can talk about that another time. But when they saw the star and they go to where Jesus was, their hearts are pumping out of their chest. This prophecy that they had been studying, that they had been reading about, and then seeing the stars, now they are coming to the place where Jesus is. And verse 11 says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense 
and myrrh. Now this verse is packed with things that we need to check as we think about how culture and songs can shape our thinking. Look at verse 11. And going in to the house. Now, where was Jesus born? We already talked about this. He was born more than likely in a cave. He was born in a place where they would keep animals. He was born in a manger. Now, Matthew, as he is writing the account of Jesus' early years, he says they're in a house. So they've transitioned from being in a cave to now they are in a house. So what is this telling us? Jesus is probably a little bit older than a baby. So more than likely, they would not, the wise men would not have been at the birth of Jesus. This is farther down the road because they've moved into a house. Then it says, they saw the child. Now what's interesting with this is if you look at the Greek in which Matthew was written, the term child is not the term that you would use for a baby. The term child is what you would use for a toddler. So what it's saying to us is not only were they in a house, cue, they're in a different place. Then they use the term child because he's saying this is a little farther down the road. So Jesus is probably maybe one or two about this time. So he was with Mary, his mother, and the Bible says, and they fell down and worshiped him. I want you to think about the absurdity of that statement. It would be like us today going to the kids center bottom floor and walking in to a one-year-old room and falling down and worshiping a child in there, right? It's like, that, that's crazy. But this shows us that Jesus is, God is doing a work through these wise men to show his Jewish audience that this is the king of the Jews. That he has brought these Gentiles who live 900 miles away to see Jesus and to fall down and worship him. And yet he is six miles from where you live and you're missing him. He grew up right around you and yet you're neglecting him. You're ignoring him. And yet he was right there. They fell down and worshiped him. And then they, as the custom would be, if you were in the presence of a superior or, or a king, you would open and give them treasures. And so they offer him gifts. And this is where we get the three wise men, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But does the Bible say there were three guys and the three guys gave three gifts? No, it just says that they gave him three gifts. So are we way off? I don't think we're way off on that, but I think we also have to be aware that scripture doesn't teach that, right? That they gave three gifts, yes, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but it doesn't tell us that there was three wise men who were there at Jesus's, at Jesus' toddler year there. So they give him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What's interesting about this, and this is something new that I guess just in my study of scripture I've never seen before. I've heard, and this has been taught to me through the years, the gold, you know, represents royalty because that's what you would give to uh, a king was gold, and they had a lot of gold, and so the wise men giving Jesus gold was pointing to the fact that Jesus is king and royalty. The frankincense, that that was used in the temple for worship, so the frankincense is pointing to Jesus, his, 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 uh, his, his, uh, let me see what my notes said. I just lost the word for it. It, 
is pointing to Jesus's, not his humanity. That's the last one. What is it? Come on, Steve, get it, get it. Deity, yes, thank you. His deity, thank you for encouragement and helping me find that word. Frankincense is deity, right? That it was pointing that Jesus was God, that as they would offer this frankincense in the temple, it was reminding them that Jesus is God. And then you have the myrrh. Myrrh is what they would use as basically cologne for when you were alive and then especially when you died, that they would use that to anoint the body so that it didn't stink as much. And so it's pointing to Jesus' death. And as I was researching this, there's whole sermons that guys preach on gold and frankincense and and myrrh. But what I came across that I found to be interesting is that this was really a way that God was providing for Joseph and Mary to care for Jesus. Because if you'll remember in Luke, when Matthew or Mary and Joseph go to present Jesus at the temple, The Bible said they were to bring a lamb if you had money. And if you didn't have money, you were to bring two turtle doves or two pigeons. What did Mary and Jesus bring? Or Mary and Jesus, Mary and Joseph. They brought the two turtle doves. Why? Because they were poor and they didn't have a whole lot of money. And so what God is doing through the gold, frankincense, and myrrh is he is providing for Mary and Joseph. So next week, when Herod says, we're gonna kill every baby two-year-old and under, Mary and Joseph have the money, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, to escape to Egypt to be saved from Herod's killing spree. Isn't that cool? That God in his kind, caring providence would send men 900 miles to come to worship Jesus and give him gifts that would ultimately provide for him and his family so they could escape to Egypt when Herod would kill everybody. Pretty, pretty cool. Verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So they end this section with the wise men have an angel that appears to them. And when he appears to them, says, don't go back through Jerusalem. Don't go see Herod, go a different way. And they follow the leadership of this angel that came and appeared to him. So this is the story. Now, what is our response to this section of scripture? Is it to just simply have a correct understanding of the Bible so we can be judgy at nativity scenes, right? So that we can look down our nose at those nativity scenes and be like three wise men, Mm mm-hmm. You know, like not so, that's not really true. When people are singing, we three kings of Orientar, we're like looking at our spouse like, "Mm, nah, that ain't true either, is it? You know, like, is that the reason we went through this section of scripture so that we can be judgy of Christmas nativity scenes? Well, I, I hope not for sure. I think the goal of our understanding of this section of Matthew's biography of Jesus is to understand that the word of God should shape what we think about Jesus in life. You see, Matthew, listen to me, is wanting his Jewish audience to see that God's word has been predicting Jesus would be the promised Messiah. That's why he's going through the genealogies. That's why he's quoting all of these Old Testament scriptures is he's saying, you have the word. 
But the problem is your life's not being shaped by the word. You have the truth. You knew the Messiah would come in Bethlehem. I mean, like it was on the tip of your lips when Herod asked you, yes, yeah, of course he's going to be born in Bethlehem. That's what Micah says. But they were missing the point. Their lives weren't being shaped about how they thought about Jesus and life because they were so focused on themselves. And the wise men, God had to send men from 900 miles away, Gentiles, to come into the story so that the Jewish audience could see you're missing the point. They heard the word of God and their life was shaped by it to the place that they went to 900 miles away. How did they respond to the word of God? Herod rejected it and tried to squelch it. When he heard, yes, this king of the Jews is going to be born in Bethlehem. A plan begins. He's rejecting the word and he's rebelling against the word. How did the chief priest and the scribes respond to the word? They were indifferent to it. I'm like, yeah, of course that's what the Bible says. Doesn't affect my life though. Of course Micah said he's going to be born in Bethlehem, but not Jesus, not Mary and Joseph. But the wise men, how do they respond to the word of God? They obey the word of God and it leads them to worship Jesus and follow his leadership through even the dream that comes in verse 12. So my question to you today is this. How do you respond to the word? Do you reject the word and rebel against it? Are you indifferent to the word? Like, yeah, of course the Bible says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. All your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. Of course it says that. But I'm going to do my own thing. Or do we respond to the word in worship. Us as pastors finished a book this last week called Sound Doctrine. And in that book, it, talks to, it talked to us about the idea of the importance of the Bible and teaching the Bible, the whole counsel of God. But I li- like in the book, it challenged us that sound doctrine demands sound living. That's one thing for us as a church to champion and we will champion preaching the word but it's another thing when we go outside of these walls that we live the word. That our lives are shaped by the word. And the wise men are examples to us of men whose lives were shaped by the word of God. How they viewed Jesus, how they viewed life. And so my question to you is how do you respond to the word of God? Do you reject and rebel against it? Are you indifferent to it? Do you come in on Sunday mornings and listen to it and go out and live whatever way you want to live? Or when you leave this place and you hear the word taught and you're in the word daily, is it shaping how you think about culture? Is it shaping how you think about life? Is it shaping how you think about Jesus? Last Sunday, I had the privilege of doing a celebration of life service for a man in our church, Stuart McCaskill. And Stuart, Patty, I see Patty and Alex sitting right here. Love you guys. Your husband, your dad, preached his own funeral on Sunday by the way he lived his life. But as I was thinking about this idea of 
a life shaped by the word of God. I thought about Stuart's life. If you know Stuart, the McCaskill's story, it is one of what I would say difficulty after difficulty after difficulty. One of them would get better physically, then one, another person would get sick. And then it was just this, con- and, and as, a, as a pastoral team, our hearts just constantly went out to them. It's like, we'd make progress and then go back and progress and back. And it, Stuart, about a year, he died October the 2nd, right? Is that, am I correct? October the 2nd, 2022, this year. But he sent me an email, October the 20th, 2021. He was just checking in with me. And I want to read some of his email that he wrote to me because this is a man whose life was shaped by the word of God. And so as I read some of his email that he sent to me, what I think you're going to hear is you're going to hear a life shaped by the word. You're going to hear a man who didn't just talk about the word. He wasn't indifferent to the word. It just wasn't words on his lips. He didn't reject and rebel. Although if there was any man in our church who could have been like, God, you are cruel and mean and hurtful. You took my daughter before me, which is nobody wants to bury their own child. You've constantly sent health challenge after health challenges, financial challenges after financial challenges. If there's anybody in our church that I could have said, you've got a right to reject and rebel because I get it. That's, it's hard. But he didn't. In fact, his life was a life of worship to God. And here's what he wrote to me a year before he died. He said, I apologize, and this is Stuart, for not attending pastor's prayer time. That's a prayer time before each Sunday morning. I really miss that a lot. Mornings are hard these days for me. I've developed a heart and lung condition that promises to take me home to heaven a lot sooner than I ever imagined. I'll be very grateful if I can make it two more years but God may have more time in store for me or less. I've never been concerned about the length of my life. All the days that were meant for us were written in his book from the foundation of the world. That's a long time indeed, and he is never late to take us home. As I always reminded Sarah, his daughter who passed away five years before him, the clay cannot say to the potter, why did you make me this way? We must be content with the cup we are given to drink. And this cup is mine for this time as it was Sarah's for her time. All of us hope to end our spiritual journey well and to bring honor to God right up to the end. I hope he will give me the strength to finish the journey well that he has laid out for me. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.